1: This is Susan Thompson, a host on New Books in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Will Rollison of Brunel University. He is a senior lecturer of anthropology. He's written a fascinating book titled Motorbike People, Power and Politics on Rwandan Streets, published in 2020 by Lexington Books. Will's book is an ethnography of taxi, moto drivers in Kigali, Rwanda's capital city, Not only is his book a rich account of the everyday lives of motorcyclists, known in Kinyarwanda as Motari, uh, it is also an anthropological challenge to the concept of power and its relationship to culture. He argues that the concept of power is too expansive, too all-encompassing to provide explanations of how power operates in a given culture. Will finds that there is a dearth of understanding in the social sciences about the concept of power leading to a conceptual inability to engage in questions of justice and make common cause with the oppressed. Will, I want to welcome you today. I'm super keen to learn from you. I um, want to start with um, the researcher as an instrument of knowledge. I'm always curious about how people do the work they do, so you write about this in the preface of your book. Um, Who are you, and what made you an anthropologist?
0: (laughs) Well, a whole lot of accidents, really, um, I, uh, I came out of school not having a very clear idea about what I wanted to do with myself, um, having studied, cause in, in the UK, you end up at school studying only three or four different subjects. So I'd studied, I think English literature and fine art and politics and, and something else, which I can't even remember what it was now. <laughs> um, and I'd done best politics. And so I thought, oh, I'll go and read politics at university and Julie went to do that. But, um, so I went to the LSE, uh, the London School of Economics, to read political science, but quickly found I, I couldn't do the math. Uh, there was a lot more math than I'd expected, and it was too much for me. And at the same time, I was taking as an elective um, an anthropology module, which was taught by Maurice Bloch, um, which was absolutely fascinating. And so at the end of my first year, much to the horror of um, the politics department, who thought that was a, very much a move down in the world, Um, I switched over to to anthropology. And then, yeah, I enjoyed it so much that I never left university, really. Uh, never worked out what else I was going to do with myself, and and so here I am.
1: I love that story. I'm a political scientist by training, and I have anthropology envy, so it's so interesting in the UK that it's a (laughs) a step down, quote-unquote. I think that's great. Um, But you don't seem self-conscious about it, so that's good. No, I mean,
0: I would never have made it as a political scientist.
1: I, I wasn't cut out for it. It was dreadful. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. Can you um, tell us how you prepared to study Rwanda? So, Rwanda, of course, you know, is a contentious um, space, sometimes hard to do research depending on whom you ask. And so, can you say more about, you know, the anthropology's primary tool field work? Um, well, by
0: comparison with a lot of the American grad students that I met while I was in Kigali, I was very poorly prepared in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't my first research project. I mean, I did my PhD fieldwork in Papua New Guinea, uh, which in lots of ways is, um, although in many respects it's more remote and places are more difficult to reach and the infrastructures and things are are, are not as good, is a much, much, much easier place to work. Um, There are... Yeah, I mean, it's socially easier. The language that I had to speak to get by there was much, much, much easier and all the rest of it. Um, Once I decided to go to Rwanda then, I mean, I was then already working as a lecturer. So the opportunities for preparation are actually relatively limited compared to what you get in a PhD, right? Um, So I arrived in Rwanda, without really having a grip on the language, um, without all that many contacts. I mean, I did have obviously contacts with colleagues um, at this end, and very fortunately, one of our PhD students was actually working in in in, Byumba, in the north of the country, um, when I was when I was in the field, and she was also very helpful. Um, but it was a very 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 steep learning curve, um, partly because uh, Kinyaranda is a, is a horrible um, language to learn. I mean, I don't mind saying that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it it was a very, very, very steep learning curve, and, of course, a very, very different context to working in Papua New Guinea. Um, So in lots of respects, if I could have my time over again, um, going to the country again, um, spending an extra year preparing for the research would be a really, really valuable thing to do. Um, Does that answer your question?
1: I feel like you offered two really important things that listeners can think about. One is language learning. And, you know, that circle says back to political science, field field work, quote unquote, in political science. You know, you're an expert in two weeks. And I I appreciate your humility about, you know, the language was difficult. I think it's fair to say it's a horrible language to learn just because of the intonation and the way that it's a felt language in some ways. I know for myself. I think I spent I can't remember now, but like three and a half four years preparing for my PhD fieldwork. Um, and you make an important point. That's the second point I think. Fieldwork as a as a faculty member is quite a different um, set of restraints. So I, I appreciate. Yeah. yeah, I appreciated your comment. Uh, but you said something also really interesting that I've struggled with. I worked in Rwanda for a long time, almost fifteen years. And then I moved my project to Kenya and South Africa. I now work with refugee women in those two settings. And I found sort of the culture of surveillance and the challenge of the language and people's general sort of, I'm going to say disregard, that might not be the right word, but disregard for white foreign researchers um, to follow me into my next field. So when you said that some of Papua New Guinea followed you into Rwanda, I thought that was a really interesting um, thing to reflect upon, particularly when we think of researchers as instruments of knowledge. So that's um, another question I have for you. You spoke in your preface and throughout the book. You had your your family with you, including a young daughter. What was your daily work like? Working with Motari, um, trying to spend time with your family and so on in a, in a in a foreign culture.
0: Um, insanely stressful. Um, I mean, everybody was very, very, very understanding. I mean, luckily, my, my, my wife, who's an incredibly patient woman, is also an anthropologist. Oh, great. Um, I mean, she's a, a Bolivian specialist. Um, so She had a pretty good idea of what to expect, but the being around children was actually something which was, was... I don't think either of us had expected it to be as difficult as it actually was, and it gives you a real... Insight into the differences, the cultural differences in terms mm. of the way people handle children, expect to handle children, and the infrastructures for children. I mean, just you know, very simply, the part of um, Kigali we were living in, uh, there weren't very many surface roads. And, you know, if you're used to pushing a, a kid around in a, in a push chair, then all of a sudden you can't. And so those things at a very practical level um, are very, very difficult, and quite apart from the fact that, uh, you know, the neighbors were very curious and, um, those, you know, we we were both kind of used to the lack of privacy that you have doing um, ethnographic work. But um, when you're also not sleeping and you're trying to look after a um, one-year-old, that is a little bit extra, a, a little bit extra stressful, I guess.
1: It's um, so interesting that you say that, because, of course, um, having children, too, in a different culture reminds you of the value that different societies place on child rearing. And was there any sort of gendered things with you being a hands on dad in the way you describe in the book?
0: Um. Yeah, Um I mean, a, a lot of the sort of gendered problems, I guess, or not that or problems, but g- gendered differences, um, issues yeah. that we had differences, well, things which, of course, become problems in the context of your sort of personal <laughs> life. Um, a, a lot of it was around a lot of it was around um, drinking culture. Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Um, so the way in which, you know, I have to go back for bath time or I have to go back for bedtime isn't an excuse. Um, that anybody will, because gender roles are different and because the men I was dealing with, I mean, a lot of the men I was dealing with, of course, were single themselves um, or were relatively young or were migrants who didn't have their families with them. Even the senior people um, who were family men uh, that I was talking to, um, you know, the the, the the men were not expecting Um, to be involved with young families in in, in the way that I was. So that did produce, uh, you know, that that, that does produce certain kinds of challenges. Obviously, when you're you're trying to run a household, which doesn't run in the way that anybody else that you're dealing with expect. Um, So, again, I had to send, you know, texts uh, late at night saying, you know, we're going to another bar now. I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be home as I said I would be. Um, So I say I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with an enormously patient and understanding wife.
1: We should all be so lucky. I think you said something really yeah. important, though. Um, my partner is also very patient. So I feel lucky about that. Um, uh, the way that how people perceive you is not something you can actually always control. Control might be the wrong word, but how um, you are perceived as an individual in, in the field, quote unquote, um, changes based on age and gender and nationality and all these sorts of things. And that, I just wanted to ask one more question before we move to your um, fascinating book. How do you, in the context of a foreign culture, um, make sense of or interpret or even verify what people tell us? And I'm thinking here of Leanne Fuji's work. I don't know if you've read it on um, mm-hmm. her fieldwork in Rwanda where she has this article titled Truth in Lies. And of course, it's a double entendre. It's she, there's a presumption of, Lying, but also what people tell you is sort of what is laid bare before you how How did you um work through your ethnographic materials to produce a book of this quality?
0: well, I think um I mean, I think there's two things to say about this. I mean, the first one was that getting around because I mean, it's something that I talk about a lot in the book yes. is what's essentially um the difference between. Um, the way I would expect people's speech to have a relationship with what I would call the truth Mm -hmm. and the way that my interlocutors thought about that relationship. Now, that's, of course, something which has been noted, especially in Rwanda, quite a bit. Um, And it goes all the way back to to, to the the very early, so, like, studies of Rwanda about truth. Now, it took me quite a long time to get to grips with what was happening Um, and with what I could take to be, let's say, reliable information, which I would call factual, and what it was that people were doing in the field. Um, Now, that was really frustrating to start with, and this is part, I suppose, of me carrying Papua New Guinea with me, Um, because if you ask a Papua New Guinean a question about something, on the whole, they'll tell you, and they'll tell you in a loud voice, and then people will fight about it, and they'll argue, um, and occasionally... Um, you find that 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 people are trying to manipulate manipulate the truth, if you like, to, to mislead you. But it's not something that you I found happening very much in the place that I was working. So I came without really grasping, I mean, having read about um, language use in Rwanda, but without really being able to imagine what that was like, and getting blindsided by it. Um, really very seriously blindsided by it and finding that actually personally, at a personal level, extremely depressing and extremely distressing in lots of ways. And of course, it makes it very, very difficult to work. So there was that sort of practical aspect to it. But in terms of the interpretation and the projection of a book, um, I suppose that my strategy really has been to assume in lots of ways that whatever it is that I'm told is true for some purpose. I suppose I would characterize it as being like that. So when somebody tells you something, I mean, it probably, it's quite likely that the sorts of things that strangers in Rwanda tell you are veiling something in some way. But it's also probably the case, I found, or or I worked on the basis that, it's probably the case that the way in which their control in what they say has a purpose to it. So even if they're not telling you what I would call the truth, they are telling you something interesting,
1: I uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that answer. I think that you're sort of um, talking about the difficulty of interpretation as a fieldwork act or a writing act, but also the, the sort of the disciplinary epistemological realm of interpretation, which of course is something... You get into in the first in the introduction to the book. You talk about the difference between an interpretive and a functional question, which is something I want to get to. But before that, I just want to tell our listeners, because the presumption is, as you know, they haven't read the book. Will has um, a five substantive chapter book plus an intro. And a uh, a conclusion, so seven full chapters. And in my reading, it's more than a a case study about the subculture of cooperative associations of, you know, motari, moto-taxi drivers in contemporary Rwanda. It's also very clearly a critique of how social scientists approach questions of power. So anyone listening who's keen to understand sort of anthropological concepts of power, social science concepts of power, will find the book really useful I think one thing that I found most fascinating when I was reading it is that you make this, you know, sometimes explicit, often subtle call to action um, to ask social scientists to sort of stand up or rise up to meet the political challenges of a of a swiftly changing world. And this last point was so interesting because it felt activist. Um, it felt like a call to action. Um, which, of course, seems to me to be against the slow prodding sort of work of scholarship, how we produce scholarship. So before we get into all of that, can you summarize your argument in your own words? Because, of course, we both know as writers what you write and how people perceive what you write are often quite different.
0: Okay. Um, well, in terms of the argument about power, um, what I'm trying to say, whether I succeed, as you say, what you, what you write and what you've tried to write aren't necessarily the same thing. What I'm trying to say is essentially that in my reading, which is also, that's a, that's a whole other issue, <laughs> um, but in my reading of, of, of social scientific theories of power, one thing is very, very, very obvious, and that's that any theory of power is also necessarily a theory of what a human being is. So one way of thinking about it is that power, as a notion of how human beings are made to do something, implies that human beings, as as, as political entities, as as subjects, however you want to talk about them, have certain places where they engage with that power. I mean, to give a sort of contemporary Um, analogy, it's it's a little bit like the way that a a virus binds to a cell, right? I mean, the cell and the virus have to have certain features that allow them to bind to one another. Now, that means that if you theorize power, straight away you theorize human being. Um, So to use um, examples that I I sort of touch on in the book, and if you think about the way that um, power gets theorized in French post structuralism so in the, in, the, in the work of people like people like Michel Foucault, um, power takes a linguistic form, and it's basically about language and what people say, and, and what they're capable, therefore, of imagining and, and, and building into their lives. Um, which also implies that you have to think about people primarily as subjects in language. Now, correspondingly, um, if you think about power um, in a different way, then your, your, your person becomes different. So the sort of critical Target, I suppose, of the book. Well, I'm critical target is perhaps the wrong word, <laughs> but the person that I'm in dialogue with in the book is very much James Scott. Yes. Whose theory of power and of people is you neo know, Marxist via a, a reading of Gramsci and all the rest of it, but is, is in some ways much more sort of practical and concrete and humanistic um, than Foucault's. I mean, the people in his theories. Who are subject to power are. I mean, you have to imagine them as people who have feelings and are capable of being humiliated and put down and made to feel um, resentful and so on. Very much as sort of every man or every person um, characters. So there's are these sort of generalized human subjects. Now that's very useful. This sort of generalized theory of power. Is very, very useful to my mind if you want to make big political statements that – or or if you want to – and the the, the sort of term I use in the book is if you want to make common cause with
1: people. Right.
0: I mean if your objective is, is compassion, right? You have to be able to imagine these other people as being inherently similar to you. You get these theories of power then, and each of these theories of power constitutes the sort of person that that power works on. And I think it's fair to say that in random studies, and indeed in social science, probably more generally, if people aren't thinking very carefully about power, and certainly if they aren't deliberately using, let's say, a Foucaultian perspective on power, then you tend to get um, these notions of power which depend on um, fairly generalized human subjects. Now, that's fine, but it does represent a choice. Because anthropologists know and have known for a long time and have been arguing since, I don't know, goodness only knows when, um, (laughs) that one of the things which is really strongly cross-culturally variable and makes different social systems and makes different um, cultures and ways of life distinctive is exactly the way they imagine human people. Right. Which means that if you want to understand personhood in a culturally specific way, you can't be applying these generalized theories of power because the theory of power brings its own theory of personhood with it, which is going to overwrite, um, whatever local theory, local people, um, are dealing with. So what I'm arguing essentially is that, I mean, I, I this is why I say that describing Scott as a critical target isn't quite right because I've got a huge amount of time for Scott. I and mean, I think he's, he's a wonderful theorist and I make a lot of use of, of his work, um, But there's a fork in the road, if you like, where either you can go the whole anthropological, you know, the full anthropological monty into theories of personhood, into the ways in which people imagine themselves and act towards one another in culturally distinctive ways, or you can do power. And what I'm asking, I guess, is what would it be like if you did theories of power on the basis of local theories of personhood? Now, if you do that, your ability to have common cause, your ability to have compassion gets really seriously eroded. You can't do that anymore mm-hmm. because the people you're dealing with are by definition not similar to you. Um, so there's that choice. And what I've tried to do through the book, I suppose, is to highlight um, why the choice matters. I'm pursuing the choice which is about specific versions of personhoods. What I'm trying to do is to sketch out what I think the people I was working with in Rwanda, the way I think they thought about relationships that we would gloss loosely as being power, right? And how that worked in terms of the way they imagined themselves as persons and the way they dealt with um, they dealt with one another and with truth and all these sorts of issues. Um, what I'm trying to do is to highlight how that choice operates and what difference it would make to pursue that, that sort of second option. If that makes sense.
1: That makes perfect sense. I... Um... It was really great to listen to you because I do think that's um, what I found so fascinating about your book. So rich um, is this not nod, but this centering of Rwandan conceptions of personhood through Motari. So perhaps we can pivot to that. And so can you describe, you know, your field site? Because you, you know, you don't have a field site in the traditional sense. You're dealing with a group of people who are mobile and are quite different as a common sample. And then, of course, you begin to think about the relationships that form um, their existence, so, like a subculture of personhood and um, power, is, which I thought was the, really the—and just to back up a little bit, the relationship between livelihoods and personhood, I thought that was really interesting as well. So could you talk to us about um, your field site, quote-unquote— the Motari, with whom you spent a lot of time. You, of course, have the story of John Baptiste, which uh, might be interesting to talk about at this stage.
0: Right. Yeah, well, I, got, I mean, I got into studying these motorcyclists um, really quite by accident, mm-hmm. um, as, as so many things happen. I mean, what I was interested in when I arrived in Rwanda, was talking um, to migrants um, from rural areas, um, especially in the context of, I mean, there's a huge... Um, program for the almost total redevelopment of Kigali, I mean, whether it's really going to happen in the form the government imagines it is is, is a different question. There's a sort of huge reimagining of the city going on as a sort of modern metropolis. And I was interested in that. Um, And the problem that I very much had um, with all of the other difficulties of, of, of suddenly... Um, moving from a a small island in Papua New Guinea um, to a city and moving to Rwanda and all the rest of it was being able to get hold of these migrants because they're all over the place. And they don't constitute a sort of field that you can get hold of in a sort of coherent way. Um, So I was talking to the people that I knew and and, and following up with various people, and and they suggested that I I talk to motorcyclists because the friends that I had who were mostly relatively well-to-do, educated um, young men, were of the opinion that all motorcyclists uh, were migrants from rural Rwanda, which is actually not true right. as it happened, but it was a sort of opening. Uh, and they said, why don't you talk to these guys because you can tell who they are um, and they work really hard and they'll talk to you, mm-hmm. um, which turned out to be true. And as it happened, the place where we were, we were living um, was literally just up the road um, from a motorcycle taxi stand. So I began working with these motorcyclists, hanging out at this one particular stand, which in the book I call the Junction. Um, and the way this happens essentially is that um, for people who, who maybe haven't haven't seen these things in action, um, these motorcycle taxis are 125 cc motorcycles. They're really not very powerful. Um, I don't know what the situation is in, 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 in on your side of the pond, but um, over here you can drive those, those bikes without a full driving license. Um, and they're ridden um, mostly by men or almost exclusively by men. Um, there are a couple of women who were riding when I was in the field, but literally uh, two um, in, in a population of 10,000-odd um, um, motorcyclists. Um They're mostly men. They're mostly quite young, there are some older people, but overall they're they're pretty young. And generally speaking, they're not particularly well-educated. The people I was talking to um, had six years primary education, and and, and that was pretty much it. Um, Now, these folks are from a variety of different backgrounds. A lot of them have come from um, background in manual work, working on building sites carrying things in markets, A couple of the people I talked to told me very happily that they used to be thieves or drug dealers or whatever. Um, So they're not elite people by any stretch of the imagination. Um, They're driving these motorcycles, which you can get at one of these stands where they congregate, the various throughout Kigali, which are big and well-known. They're at the bus station. uh, They're at the big shopping centers. um, They're at the markets. And also in sort of particular places throughout the city so this particular junction that i worked at was just a road junction there's a petrol station there's some shops, um, and there happens to be a motorcycle taxi stand there it's a road head to a road that goes out to the countryside so you can pick them up there you can hail them on the street um, lots of people um who live in kigali actually know motorcyclists and they'll actually call somebody up who they know um, a bit more like a minicab um, or something like that and get themselves picked up by somebody that they know and trust and these people then they'll charge you um while I was in the field, you could pay as little as one or two hundred random francs um for a short trip, um, you know, a couple of a couple of kilometers. Um so that's I don't know what this is in I in, 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 I can do this in, in sterling. I mean it's ten or twenty p so I guess that's thirty or forty cents um, to um to go on a trip, or if I went to the airport it cost me about fifteen hundred francs. Now, that money that motorcyclists make, they don't make strictly for them or purely for themselves because while I was in the field in 2012, 2013, most of the people I was talking to, they rode these bikes, but they didn't own them themselves. The bikes were owned by other people who were entrepreneurs, um, mostly very, very small-scale entrepreneurs, who'd um, purchased, either new or second-hand, had purchased motorcycles and made a little bit of money renting those motorcycles out to the young men who actually rode them. And that costs 5,000 francs a day. Wow. So whatever else that a motorcyclist has to do, he has to pay 5,000 or francs to his boss um, every day for the use of the motorcycle. That system is changing. When I was back in the field in 2015, I found many more people who were either owner-operators, they were owning their own bikes, or who were involved not in a rental agreement with a boss, but in a credit agreement with a boss. Hmm. That was there in 2012, 2013, but it looks like it's becoming more prevalent. I mean, the riders I was talking to were saying that they'd started to do that uh, because the bosses were finding the motorcycles don't last long enough. So they'd rather get the 5,000 francs a day in payment for the motorcycle and they not have to worry about it anymore rather than take the money and have to sell it later because, you know, later it's, it's broken and it's all full of dust and it doesn't really work anymore. So those systems are very much on the move, um, which is in itself interesting yeah. because um, this whole system of transport, you know, with these motorcycles in in Kigali, is all all since the genocide. So this is all after um, the end of the civil war and genocide in 1994. So it's all relatively recent, and it's quite a fluid sort of social situation. And that also applies to the regulation of the sector. So when um, motorcycles were first being used as taxis um, in Kigali, um, riders who remember that time, I mean, they remember it with great fondness because they can make a huge amount of money because there was very, very little um, in the way of public transport infrastructure immediately after the genocide and the end of the Civil War. Um, So riding a motorcycle was a really good way to get money in those days. But also that it was a bit like the Wild West. Um, There was no regulation whatsoever. Um, There was a lot of crime um, until relatively recently. At least that's what people say. I mean, I haven't got any way directly of substantiating that, obviously. But city officials that I spoke to, as well as motorcyclists that I spoke to, said it was actually really quite lawless and quite dangerous. Um, Then it started to become relatively um, organized towards the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. An association of motorcyclists was set up. Um, that helped to sort of organize things a bit better. Um, In 2000, and I'm going to stick my neck out here, I'm terrible with dates, but I'm going to say in 2008, um, the sector was reorganized again um, at the behest of the government at the same time that a lot of other areas, the sort of informal economy in Rwanda were reorganized um, into a system of cooperatives which allowed much stronger government oversight um, of what was going on in this sector. So now these motorcyclists, as well as having obligations to their bosses, have other obligations to their cooperatives. They have to pay fees every day. They have to abide by certain rules. They have to wear identifying jackets, uh, which show what cooperative they belong to and have, have an identifying number. So in principle, um, the riders can be individually tracked down um, by the security personnel that the cooperatives run, and also by the police. So they're also, as well as being engaged with these bosses, these riders are also sort of meshed into um, this sort of quasi statele system um, of cooperatives, which sort of operate police functions and security functions, and um, serve to um, pass down instructions and, and policy advice and so on from the government and from the police and from the city council, and... Um, down to motorcyclists. So that was the kind of context, essentially, that I was working in. I mean, in practical terms, it meant one of two or three things. Um, I would ship up most days at my local motorcycle stand and spend time chatting with the guys who were there. Um, Both the riders who were working and also uh, a group of riders who weren't working um, because they, for one reason or another, didn't have access to a motorbike. Uh, Mostly they, they didn't have these relationships to these entrepreneurs, to these bosses um, that the other motorcyclists had. So they were waiting for somebody to get tired um, so they could borrow uh, a motorbike um, for, again, for that 5,000-franc fee. So a motorcyclist will ride his bike for eight or ten hours, um, and when he gets tired, he'll pass it on to somebody else, and that somebody else will pay him the 5,000-francs that he owes to the boss. So these bikes get passed around in quite complicated ways sometimes. Um, and certainly, most of the time, they're on the road 24 hours um, a day, more or less. Uh, so I spent a lot of time talking to the guys who didn't have motorbikes, obviously because they, you know, they weren't as busy. Um, they had time on their hands. Um, they were just sort of sat in the shade waiting for something to happen and so sort of very willing to talk. Um, so a lot of them are quite experienced motorcyclists. I mean, these guys will, will, will fall in and fall out of relationships with bosses. Um, especially the ones who have slightly um, um, irregular or, or, or insecure lives in one way or another. You know, sometimes they're going to be able to maintain that relationship and sometimes they won't. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking with them. And then at other times I went around um, with my research assistant, who, who deserves to be front and center, actually, of, of everything I'm saying. Here. Absolutely brilliant. Um, facilitating things and helping me to talk to people. Um, so I went around with him and we interviewed um, people from the cooperatives, the local cooperatives, and um, people from the city council, um, the police, and so on, other people who were sort of stakeholders um, in the motorcycle business. We also talked to a couple of, of engineers, you know, um, mechanics, rather. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the sort of sector and what I did. <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned the story of John Baptiste. Um, he was... um Excuse me he was actually a cooperative leader um, who I got involved in, uh, got involved with. Um, I mean, one of the things which was going on while, um, while I was in the field was that there was a sort of sea change going on in the way that the cooperatives were managed and the way that they operated. So I mentioned a bit earlier that, that around 2008, the organization of motorcyclists, if you like, this was, civil society, loosely civil society organisation of motorcyclists was rearranged. And it was rearranged from an informal association to a system of, of cooperatives which are defined in a particular way in random law. What happened when that happened was that the branches of the Motorcyclist Association were just turned into cooperatives. But what was going on by 2012, 2013, when I was in the field, was a whole lot of new cooperatives were being set up. And these new cooperatives were kind of in competition with the old cooperatives, which were these old branch um, associations. And Jean-Baptiste was the president of one of these new cooperatives. And he was um, very aggressive in lots of ways. He set the fee to joined his cooperative extremely low, and he was trying to attract Um, all of these riders from other cooperatives to join his new cooperative. Um, Now, there are lots of reasons why he might have been doing that. Um, Obviously, he wanted to make a name for himself, and he he was looking for people uh, to connect himself to and to sort of create a following for himself amongst motorcyclists. But also, motorcyclists very often would say that their cooperatives were corrupt. And um, that people were people who were in the sort of hierarchy of the cooperatives would take their fees and take fines and take money from them, which in principle should belong to the cooperative and should ultimately go back to the members, but in practice would vanish. And so Jean Baptiste was quite possibly involved in that kind of activity. And he certainly benefited from it because he gained a lot of members. And when there was a big scandal in the old, well established cooperative that he was sort of competing with, basically what happened is that the president of the cooperative lit out to South Africa with all of the money um, and was never seen again. So there was a lot of bad feeling in that cooperative. You know, a great deal of money had, had, had gone missing. And so a lot of those members joined with Jean Baptiste and with his new cooperative. Now, I mean, this sort of story, I guess, gives you a bit of a sense of quite how cutthroat, in some ways, how dangerous um, this whole sector is and this whole, um, I suppose in a way, the whole of the informal economy of Kigali because one way or another Jean-Baptiste then was making waves um, in the amongst the established cooperatives in his bit of Kigali but also more broadly and those cooperative leaders had a very strong connection with one of the officials um, in Kigali City Council who took a very sort of strong interest And a lot of my motorcyclist friends thought a corrupt interest um, in what was going on. Of course, none of this. I mean, I'm not making any allegations here. I'm just saying what people said to me. Um, And so what happened to Jean-Baptiste ultimately is that um, rivals from within the um, motorcycle sector along with this official from Kigali City Council, essentially tried to shut him down and tried to install a new corporative leadership, and he was in prison. Um, He was in prison, but managed to get himself out again um, quite rapidly. And what his allies told me at the time was that they'd gone to um, the ruling party, essentially, to the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, directly, not through the government, but directly used contact within the party to get Jean-Baptiste, um, released and he was released and he was reinstated um, against this and this this official in the city council was reprimanded quite publicly I mean it was in the Kenyaranda newspapers
1: yep.
0: um, that the mayor of Kigali had reprimanded him it didn't last unfortunately for Jean-Baptiste though he um, well fortunately or unfortunately um, by the time I came back to Rwanda in, in 2015 he wasn't president of the cooperative anymore and it looked as though he was probably going back to prison because um, what he'd essentially tried to do is he'd, um, he'd tried to argue that a great deal of the cooperative's property um, actually belonged to him. So it seemed that when he was, um, when he was supported by his, you know, his staff and his, you know, the cooperative members when he was first put into prison, uh, they kind of hoped that some of that stuff would get shared around. Um, but by 2015, it, it was fairly obvious that he was overplaying his hand, as it were. Um, and trying to get more out of it than than anybody was willing to support him to do, um, and the same people who were saying in in 2013 that you know, he was a good guy, he was a victim of terrible injustice. Right. Um, those people were now saying, you know, he was totally corrupt, and he had to go to prison, and it was a disgrace that he'd ever been president of a cooperative. So it was all quite, um, it was all quite cutthroat. The whole business. I mean, it, it felt sometimes a little bit um, as if you were mixed up in in, in some um you know in some sort of mob movie occasionally. Yeah,
1: the intrigues.
0: <laughs> yeah, really. You know, so sort of Game of Thrones stuff.
1: What does um thank you for all of that. What does John Baptiste's story or what you've learned from uh, your work with Motari teach us about subcultures and the relationship between the culture of the Motari, which is what I understand you to be doing in your book, and, you know, the circulation of power in the way that you described earlier. How, how can students, listeners understand the concept of culture and the concept of power as you conceptualize it um, through a case study like Jean-Baptiste?
0: Okay. Um, so I think the first stage to, to, to hooking these things together um, is to think about what changed between when Jean-Baptiste was first in trouble with the authorities And what happened when, in 2015 when he looked like he was going to be in trouble again?
1: Oh, interesting. Now,
0: what what happened when he was first in trouble with the authorities is that Jean-Baptiste was able to get out of trouble by mobilizing a whole lot of influential people in his defense, right? So he got in touch with, or he didn't personally, but his supporters got in touch with, Local government, Um, and I know that definitely because I've seen the correspondence that they wrote uh, between themselves and the executive secretary of the of the local um, of the of the the local government units that the cooperative um, operated in. So they got in touch with those people. And also they told me, now I can't evidence this because this is all done by word of mouth, so I only have what they told me. They also told me they got in touch with, with the RPF, and I've got no reason to suppose they didn't just go um, to the head office, which is, is, is located in Kigali, and go and, go and go and actually talk to senior people in, in, in the ruling party. So what he was doing was organizing for himself a network of people who would support him. Now, he didn't do that in a vacuum he um had laid the groundwork to be able to do that in his rise to become the president of uh, the cooperative and he'd done that by um way I did, what I did, the way what I the way I'm describing the book is by aligning himself um to the sorts of things that those influential people would like him to say the sorts of positions that he would like they would like him to take up so um what essentially, if you talk to him, it was very, very, very obvious, especially before he knew me desperately well, is you would have this conversation with him and he would just interject um, by saying, oh, we have the most amazing government. You know, the government is fantastic and we'll re-elect the president 100%. He'd say these kinds of things in meetings as well. Um, so in that way, and also in more subtle ways, in the way that he described the cooperative system, in the way that he cultivated his Connections and the way that he spoke about and the sorts of people he tried to connect me to—it was obvious that what he was doing was connect was 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 creating this um yeah this network of associations with people who'd potentially be useful. Now that goes back to what I was talking about at the start, I guess, about the way in which Rwandan people handle truth. And this is something which as I say comes out very clearly from from the scholarship, and this isn't my idea. Um, but the ways in which um, Rwandan people speak and when they speak, it's almost inevitably politically, um, that what's important in a relationship is not what is true, but what the more influential, the situationally more influential interlocutor wants to hear, right? Yeah, I agree. What their position is, what will align with their position. So what he'd done in my reading is he created this network, which meant that when he was in trouble Um, That network was activated against the resources of this this, this official in Kigali City Council and and his allies um, in the other motorcyclist organizations. And ultimately, that was sufficient to get Jean-Baptiste out of trouble. Enough people thought that his support was worth having or they were going to get something out of him, that he was worth supporting. Now, when he was in trouble again in 2015, though it was quite obvious, to lots of people. But actually, it wasn't that worth having. But what he was trying to do, I mean, in fact, what he did um, was he 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 went to court, Jean Baptiste. He went to court to try and argue that all of the things that he'd stolen from the cooperative. I mean, all of these cooperative um, presidents essentially have have you know a dubious relationship to what's their property and what's the cooperative's property. Some of them put it back, some I said don't. Um, but he'd, he'd, he'd tr- gone to court to try and argue that everything actually belonged to him. And by doing that, what he'd essentially done was to cut that network off, right? If this stuff just yeah. belonged to him, then nobody had any interest any longer in supporting him because none of it was going to flow um, down this network. His support wasn't worth having. He wasn't a useful person to be, to be in touch with. And his support totally melted away. So he was in serious trouble. Now, I think that that's telling you about um, theories of power. There's two things, I think, that I take from that. The first one is that to understand how people are manipulating these relationships, which are to do with control, which are to do in one way or another with force, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. who, who who gets to prevail in particular situations, are very much modeled on the way they're handling language, the way they're handling their social relations, Um, the way they imagine their plans and things playing out in relation to others. In other words, they're founded on the way they imagine themselves as persons, right, operating in the world. So that's the first thing I think that I would take from that. And the second one is that um, ideas about resistance and power work relatively poorly in relation to this story, and this, again, isn't an idea that I can, I can lay any particular claim to, I and mean, Nicola Palmer also makes the same um, kind of argument, um, is that what's going on is a crossing, if you like, between people who are in relatively weak social positions or relatively low hierarchical positions. I mean, the way my random friends would describe it was they were on a low level. Right, low no um, people. There's a crossing between those low people And high people, because the low people are mobilizing the high people, just as the high people in turn will mobilize them. So the exercise of power and the exercise of resistance actually look very much the same. It's just a question of where in that network you're looking at any given time, right? And you can say that Jean-Baptiste is a kind of subaltern character in some ways, right? He's not really a very powerful person. I mean, he's a sort of two-bit businessman in some ways. Right. So in some ways, it looks as though he should be a sort of resistant character. But at the same time, what he's doing is not really of a different kind um, to what people on the other side were doing when they were mobilizing this um, official in Kigali City Council um, for their purposes. Um, so what you've got then is this sort of this sort of situation where if you read it like that, and I say you don't have to by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that reading is available. If you read it like that, it complicates where you think um power and resistance might lie in any of these social situations.
1: I think that's the for me as someone who also has worked on Rwanda, is the value of your book because you show us, number one, the importance of these kind of networks. The culture of a network like the Motari um, subculture, let's call it, and then the way that individuals who have a certain economic standing in society are able to jockey, I guess. I'm not sure I have the right word available at this minute, but um, it is a two sided coin in the way that you describe. Sometimes you're, you know, uh, an underling, a low person, and other times. Um, You're a high person or a person of prestige or status. I I thought that was the real um, clever turn in your work. I thought your work was really important um, for that reason. And, of course, we're beginning to run out of time, so I don't want to keep you much longer. You've been so generous with your ideas and your time. Um, Can you tell us, just sort of as we begin to wrap up, about the cover art? How did you choose it? What do you intend to um, convey with the cover? You have a fascinating cover, I would urge listeners to go to the website and take a look of um, a street in Kigali motor circles, UN type four by fours, pedestrians, and you kind of stylized it. I don't know if it's a piece of art or it's if it's a um, uh,
0: sepia it, it, toned it, it, photograph.
1: It, it, <laughs> it's actually
0: underneath there somewhere it's a photograph, um, which, I mean, when I was publishing the book, I mean, Lexington very generously gave me um, access to, Lots of um, stock images, um, but for one reason or another, while I think that actually visually motorcyclists are quite compelling, um, people who take photographs of motorcycles in Rwanda always seem to want to do it up country in, in, in rural areas, um, which I suppose looks more African y and more, I don't, I don't know why they do it, but anyway, there weren't really any appropriate images. Um, so I had to use one of my own. Um, which is what this is. It's a photograph that I took um, on a mobile phone, actually. Um, it's stylized principally to keep it safe.
1: Makes sense. Um,
0: so it's been through a large number of filters to make something which I thought looked like a half-decent image. Um, but because of the uh, faces and faces and number plates,
1: yeah I think it's a beautiful um, it's because- a beautiful image. it's a, it's a really stunning image. Thank you. yeah.
0: Um, yeah, no, I mean it's nice, but I mean it was really that was that was the reason it got stylized. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of photographs, but um because of the kind of political context that Rwanda is, I absolutely didn't want to have any number plates or anything identifiable in the image, which is why it 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 got you know it it got done like that.
1: Is that also why you don't have any um, pictures or photographs of your interlocutors in the book?
0: Yeah, that that that, that is why. Um, again, I I took. I mean, I took a lot of a lot of photographs, um, which was a great way of getting to know people, and you, you were able to then give them give them prints and, and and so on. Or, or yes, it was actually before many of them could deal with it digitally. I suppose it was just on the cuff. Yeah, you could give them prints and so on, and people enjoyed having their photographs taken. Um, but at the end of the day I, I, I just thought it wasn't worth the um it wasn't worth the risk. Well, it's of an, exposing people.
1: It's an interesting observation, having just heard you speak about Jean Baptiste, you can be um, you know, free to move, so to speak, uh, in in one context and sanctioned and Um, accused of corruption in another context um but will i want to um you know thank you for your time i just want to ask one more question i always like um my listeners to know number one what you're working on now and if um sub question what novels or books or anything what would you recommend about rwanda or your current project or whatever sort of for future reading you might offer to the listener
0: Oh, goodness. What am I working on now? Well, to be absolutely honest, I've spent the last, how long is it now, in lockdown, homeschooling to kids. Um, 20 days, yeah. uh, (laughs) yeah, Over the past, I don't know how long. I felt really lucky if I got 90 minutes of work done um, a day. Um, What am I working on now? Well, the next thing I think that I'm interested on is thinking about um, the pandemic. Um, There are two things I'm interested in. One of them is modelling especially the relationship between conventional epidemic modelling and um, dynamic, these new dynamic forms of modelling associated with this neuroscientist, Carl Friston, uh, which are capable of, of, of digesting uncertainty, um, and that ask questions about the nature of modernity um, in interesting ways, which dovetail actually with, with, with the final chapter of the book and, and, and what I have to say about thinking about the world otherwise. Yes. Um, in the final chapter of the book. So that's one thing I'm interested in. The other thing that I'm interested in is compliance. Um, I mean, this book is very much about compliance um, and and the ways in which people imagine and comply with government demands, uh, which I think probably has something to say with the way that people have handled lockdown um, as a kind of event, which has required massive compliance. Um, So those are two things I'm interested in at the moment. Um, things that people can read well i um i mean obviously they should read your 2018 uh, book which oh, is a great introduction to uh rwanda and rwandan and politics and, and very 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 accessible and which i enjoyed greatly um the other things which i've read and really enjoyed um andrea pedokova's uh, making a bummer is, is is a great book
1: is a great book um, i reminder. really enjoyed that
0: book um i mean it, it's It's so interesting and so, um, yeah, it's it's horrifying in in, in lots of ways. (laughs) And the other book, which I've got a huge amount out of, and it's totally in in a way off topic um, from my point of view, um, though I do make a lot of use of it in the book, is is Scott Strauss's Order of Genocide, um, which I think is is really a sort of social scientific tour de force in lots of ways. Um, A really, really, really good book.
1: Uh, I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. I mean, I, I, also, I also would continue to recommend J.J. Um, Mackey's Premise of Inequality, which, while it gets very, very bad press, um, is in lots of ways, remains extremely interesting. Um, I mean, it's a very problematic book in all sorts of ways, terribly, terribly problematic, and reveals all sorts of issues about, in some ways, how you shouldn't do research in Rwanda. Um, but at the same time, there's so many continuities between what he's saying uh, back in the day and, and, and the sorts of things that, that Strauss and, and Podicobra and myself, I think, are saying.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to end, Well, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. And, um, yeah, just thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure.